0: the co-chair of the land use committee of this like local community board was caught on video, which anyone can see on Twitter and I highly recommend you check it out because it's crazy shit to me, saying that every neighborhood contributes something different to New York City. But what our neighborhood, like the neighborhood of Soho contributes is not affordable housing, it's cobblestones. Like she said this on video.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to We Hate Politics, where a podcast that we don't really hate politics, we just hate what it does to policy. My name is Brandon McCoy, and I am joined by my partners and co-hosts. First up, Oren Jacobson. How are you doing?
2: Uh, it's another day. <laughs> yes, it is. Does that, does that say enough?
1: It's another day. <laughs> it says everything we I'm need I'm all right, to brother. Know. Good to be with you. You too. And Aaron... Car, my friend, how are you doing well? best day ever, best day ever uh It is our first podcast episode for this idea, which is basically I think we just wanted a space to explore various issues in policy and politics, but you know there's just certain things about partisan politics that make discussing these issues in a real way in a honest way in a comprehensive way difficult and awful, and so We're gonna put all that stuff to the side and just have deep conversations about policy, what we can do to make sure that they are moving forward in a proper way that serves the needs of people and that they're implemented well. But first, I think it's fair to uh, introduce ourselves a little bit. So how about Oren first, you, who are you, where are you from, what do you do?
2: Uh, I'm the official baggage handler of the We Hate Politics team. Uh, my name is Orrin Jacobson, nice. and uh, I am live, live in the suburbs now of Chicago, Illinois. We will not insult the good people of Chicago by saying I'm in Chicago. And uh, I am a multi-sector consultant, which means I tell people what to do in a bunch of different sectors. And a policy advisor, and I also run a nonprofit uh Launched and uh, run a nonprofit called Men for Choice, which works to engage, educate, and activate uh, male-identifying allies into the fight for reproductive freedom. And obviously, we all know each other from our time together in New Leaders Council, where I was previously the national uh, chapter development director. Very, very good. What a what a resume.
1: What what a what a leader. I what love a it. resume. <laughs> Aaron, what about you? What, are you? what are you up to? What do you do? How do you make your bread?
0: Oh man, uh, Aaron. Live in New York City, very interesting times to say the least. Um, a few years ago, I, I started a uh, nonprofit organization called Housing Rights Initiative. I am here in my personal capacity, uh, and uh, you know we generate class action lawsuits against predatory landlords. Uh, we've generated over seventy class action lawsuits to date, including uh, against Kushner Companies, uh, which was recently featured on an episode of uh, the Netflix series *Dirty Money*. In case anyone. Wants to check it out or not. Uh, and, you know, our mission is pretty straightforward. We, we get back affordable housing. that has been stolen from New York City and America. Uh, we're anti-stealing. We're pro upward mobility. I love what I do. It's been a fun ride.
1: Excellent. Uh, the great thing about that Netflix documentary is there's an incredible scene of Aaron putting on a buttoned t-shirt. Uh, in a, I did it and all and myself. Rumor all has, myself, it. by the way, yeah.
2: Rumor, rumor has it, it took twenty takes to get you to figure out how to put the shirt on, though.
0: Well, sometimes I, you know, you could put it on incorrectly. I put it on my leg.
1: There you, you go. You know, I had no. to get it right, but I got it right in the end, and that's
2: there all that
0: matters.
1: Definitely check out that that uh, that documentary. And uh, my name is Brandon McCoy. I hail from the great state of New Jersey. I live in Trenton, New Jersey. I am the president of a nonprofit uh, public policy think tank named New Jersey Policy Perspective. We do work on uh, a host of issues, but especially tax and budget policy, healthcare, immigration issues, and economic security. So things like minimum wage, paid sick leave, paid family leave, et cetera. And so um, I've been there for going on six plus years now. I've been president for a year, uh, and it's great. And really, policy is my passion. Uh, Oren mentioned very briefly that we all got to know each other and met through an organization called New Leaders Council which ostensibly helps people uh, learn how to do public speaking and hold birthday parties Uh, but a little bit more than that (laughs) is it's a it is a a training uh, it's it's an organization that trains young leaders who are a little bit earlier in their careers uh, and gives them the tools to make change in their chosen communities um it really changed my life i believe you guys have changed both of yours in major ways and i know obviously we would not be here without it so thank you to nlc we will probably rarely mention it again going forward uh, <laughs> cuz we don't want to bring but them we into it I-, <laughs> yeah. I think i think i think i
2: think our ceo claire bresnahan english would not uh not exactly love the birthday uh, <laughs> the birthday party celebration as the core thing but NLC is the largest leadership development organization in the left. Right. We, uh, we just care about people and making a difference. Um. But in, in fairness, Brandon, I must say, apparently, if you care about all people in this country, you're engaging in overt acts of politics. Mm. And so we just got like put that out there. Right? Like, if I stand up and say, you know, black people, you know, black lives matter, that's an act of politics to some in this country
1: it is and we're probably gonna get into that a little bit here so you know when we were conceiving of this uh, wacky and wonky idea uh, let's see we went over a couple different ideas right we we said we want to talk about coronavirus obviously because who could imagine that being overtaken by anything Uh, and then I saw a great tweet that said you know it's hard to see coronavirus lose a 28 to 3 lead to racism but it really did it and so we are in this moment now (laughs) of um, <laughs> America really <laughs> grappling with you know 400 plus years of discrimination, racism, mm. uh, marginalization, uh, subjugation, all these terrible things. Uh, but the topic we're gonna discuss here today is defund the police. Very straightforward, simple topic. Totally no pitfalls there, right? And I think I wanna just make a point. You know, mm. as we talk through these things, we're thinking out loud, right? We're thinking these things through Um, this is not meant to be like the be-all end-all of our positions on these issues it's meant to be a conversation to think through you know what are the benefits of these policies what are the uh, potential pitfalls of them uh, or challenges that that they face and how can we make sure that we're getting to a point where we have a policy and a platform no matter what it is we're talking about that's achieving the goals that we have which is you know, for me at least, I'll say its, it's making sure that people have the oper- the um, the resources they need to thrive. It's making sure that they are they are safe, that they can be healthy, that they can be uh, secure, and they can pursue lives full of joy and happiness, right? And so, as we talk through any of these issues, uh, we're gonna we're just gonna we're gonna be free willing it. And uh, I hope it's I hope it's something that's interesting to everyone. So, uh, Oren, do you want to really just sort of open up a little bit here about yeah. wh- how wh- how we're gonna talk about this today?
2: Yes yeah, so like you said, we're going we're gonna to jump into the, you know the defund the police conversation uh, and try to unpack it. but we thought it might make sense to start macro and go micro. So let's, let's sort of get to root cause questions first and then come down to policy specifics about a very specific uh, issue that is not the only issue that is facing the country. You made what I thought was a great joke at the Atlanta Falcons expense, I believe, <laughs> uh, when you said COVID lost to 20. Was it twenty-three to three lead? Is twenty-eight really to three. Oof. Um, twenty-eight to three. Sorry about that. Um, but look, there, there, uh, there has been a virus that has killed more than hundred thousand Americans, and there is a virus that is killing America. And to start a conversation around defunding the police, we have to start by actually naming. And defining what that virus actually is, and so we're you know we're we're talking today in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor's murder. Who, by the way, her murders are still at large. Ahmad Arbery, Tony McDade, Rayshard Brooks. Um, right, we we had to watch the world watched for eight minutes and forty six seconds as George Floyd had a knee on his neck, and while police brutality uh, is now front and center. Um, we've got to make sure that we separate symptoms from causes individual racism alone did not kill George Brianna uh, Ahmad Tony or Richard. police brutality alone are not responsible or is not responsible for these murders police brutality and individual racism are only symptoms of a disease of a virus and we can't defeat that virus or that disease unless we name it and focus on it so I want to start in the macro I want to specifically name systemic racism, fueled by white supremacy, as the virus that is killing America. It is the virus that has killed Black lives for 400 years, um, and Indigenous people, and uh, you know, folks from the Latinx community, etc. But those words are very loaded, right? White supremacy makes a lot of people who look like me tense up. Systemic racism sounds very confusing. So let's let's spend a little bit of time talking about it. So, uh, Brandon, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you first. How do you define white supremacy? Uh,
1: to me, white supremacy is really, you know, a system in which white individuals uh, have advantages afforded to them uh, based on their skin color alone in which non-white individuals are consistently um, undermined, marginalized um, disenfranchised, uh particularly when it comes to uh the levers of power uh both in politics and in society um there's also incredibly violent aspects to white supremacy, uh, and that is how power is uh you know uh held uh and and just uh, i guess you know how power is just sort of taken away from non-white uh, americans and non-white residents in this country um but it's definitely a system that is built just straightforwardly to benefit white americans at the expense of everybody else regardless of outcome regardless of pain regardless of damage
2: ac what do you think
0: i have two answers uh to this question i'll try to articulate Best of my ability like i think it's important to distinguish between the explicit definition of white supremacy and more of the implicit definition you know the explicit definition is what brandon said right it, it gets the most attention which is a person an entity a thing um, that believes that like the white race is superior to everything else right like that white people should have control over people of other races Um, And I find this very overt form of the term. It's everywhere, but like it's most prevalent on the far right. Like, so take, for instance, recently defeated Congress member Steve King, who infamously said, I have the quote right here, uh, white nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization. How did that language become offensive? Like, why did I sit in classes teaching me about the merits of our history? and our civilization so like that to me is like the most obvious like ugly freaking form of white supremacy Like, can't get worse than that but then there's like this less obvious form of white supremacy it's one like that i'm very interested in because like i see it manifest itself at times on the left or like quote unquote the left and i think this is like particularly problematic at a local level, especially when it comes to land use and housing policy matters. So like, let me give you like a real life example here. I, I work in the affordable housing space, as I mentioned. Uh, we mostly spend our days just suing like, assholes like Kushner companies. But like on the side, we also push back on exclusionary neighborhoods. And there's this like smallish push in New York City like, to create affordable housing in a neighborhood called Soho. And like, for those of you who are not familiar with Soho, it's like pearly gates, like fourth richest area in America, 1% black, like in a city that is 25% black, like it is highly segregated and like in a liberal place like New York City, right? Like creating affordable housing in Soho would seem like a very obvious thing to do, given that Soho doesn't have any affordable housing. So long story short, uh, at one of the public hearings on this affordable housing proposal, the co-chair of the land use committee of this like local community board was caught on video, which anyone can see on Twitter, and I highly recommend you check it out because it's crazy shit to me, saying that every neighborhood contributes something different to New York City. But what our neighborhood, like the neighborhood of Soho, contributes is not affordable housing it's cobblestones. Like she said this on video like cobblestones. like this is her argument against integration like against affordable housing. And like somehow this was like kind of acceptable like to the left like there was no political backlash against it. And like I guess like when progressives decide they no longer want to be progressive, but, like, still want people to think they're progressive so, like, they can go to cocktail parties and, like, talk about how great they are. Like, this is what they do. Like, they engage in this, like, implicit, coded, symbolic, like, hidden, but, like, highly corrosive form of supremacy. Like, think of the cobblestones of Soho, like, Trump's wall across the southern border, Like the cobblestones keep out low income people. They keep out people of color. Like they keep out immigrants. Like they make SoHo great again. Like that's like the community (laughs) board member's point. And like on the far right, you know, you can be more explicit about racism, but like on the left, if you wanna screw people of color over, you have to speak softly. Like you have to be more low key about it. And I think like it's very important to capture both the implicit kind and the explicit kind. So like we can save progressivism from like some of these people.
2: <laughs> hmm. I, I have to inter- interject with a breaking news story. Cobblestone has officially filed lawsuit against Aaron Carr <laughs> in federal court for the defamation, and slander. The okay. Cobblestone lobby. So- <laughs> Cobblestone lobby is strong especially the Soho cobblestone lobby. I've never seen so much animus at cobblestones by the way except for except for the last four minutes. Um, All right so I've heard a couple things from you from the both y'all so far. One is sort of um, this like overt white supremacy the the traditional definition of white supremacy about the belief that one race is superior to another or to all. Um, Then I've heard this like second More uh, covert white supremacy, which is the system, right? A system in a society that perpetuates benefits for white folks at the uh, explicit expense or implicit expense of non-white folks. The third thing that I want to add, and I want to pivot uh, to talk Mm -hmm. a little bit more about defining the system, is I think it's important to know, you know, from my perspective, and and Kendi sort of uh, mentions this uh, in How to Be an Anti-Racist, is he says. Denial is the heartbeat of racism right and so one of the ways that white supremacy manifests itself in America isn't just the overt bigotry of people walking you know walking down the street in Charlottesville with tiki torches and it's not just the system itself it is the denial of the existence of the system the dismissal of that system or the justification of that system because the opposite of the denial requires me to accept the fact that the benefits that I receive are in part paid for by a cost placed onto other people. And that's a pretty complicated thing to do, to recognize that like, I got a lot of benefits, Brandon, and part of those benefits have been paid by people like you so that I could have better situations. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about those benefits. Let's define systemic racism a bit more, because that's the other side of this, right? Is like, how racist policy creates inequitable outcomes so like Mm -hmm. when you hear the phrase systemic racism what does that mean to you and how should we understand it
1: i mean to me it means you know better better opportunities and i think we should be careful or i i'll take you know for myself people like always talk about opportunity but what we're really talking about is outcome like you like you alluded Mm -hmm. to right and so better educational outcomes uh healthier and safer uh, communities and housing or you know homes rather um i think better access and more likely uh acquisition of high paying you know prestigious jobs um and with that comes a certain level of political capital um that helps acquiring other aspects of you know um, of, of the things i've mentioned easier Um, But it's just this sort of understanding that white Americans are going to be—this is the default position. Systems are meant to serve their interests, and the most important thing is ensuring that they are taken care of. And even for white Americans who are low-paid and impoverished— at least there's an excuse there or justification there of saying you still have enough social capital in the society to be above everybody else with more melanin in their skin than you are, right? Or than you, than you have, rather. And I think there's a lot of ways in which obviously that animated throughout the last presidential election. Uh, it is a way for people to sort of, you know, structure the, the how society should be how society should be run, uh, in their mind, it makes it easier to say okay these folks get this those folks get that, and I think the best way to to see this in action is um, when you look at parts of the country that are mostly white, they have more robust more generous welfare systems and programs mm. than states and parts of the country that are more diverse, right? And as parts of the country that are or have been mostly white have gotten more diverse over time, their welfare and safety net systems have gotten less um, generous and less comprehensive. And that just speaks to how we perceive who is deserving of state support, government support, whatever it may be. And I think that is really the key difference here is because white Americans have been provided a lot of resources from the federal government, state government, county, local, you name it, to build wealth, to build comfort to build a life of prosperity and really what this fight is about is also providing those resources and supports to everybody
2: else. Hmm. So you 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 mentioned you know you're sort of talking about access to opportunity uh, while also sort of talking about outcome And so when I when I hear that what I hear is sort of like I hear the opposite in my head I hear that, the outcomes on average are worse for black people than for white people across a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of, you know, different frameworks. And it's almost as if you're arguing for a genuinely meritocratic world Mm -hmm. by saying the structure itself is creating an an inequity in outcomes on average, Mm -hmm. and we need to fix that specific. So I'm curious, Aaron... You know, when you hear the word systemic racism or when you think about it, either within your work or just generally, what 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 comes to mind for you? Hmm. Cobblestones.
0: I think I'm going to go back to that. (laughs) I'm going to belabor this. Let's ride it. Because let's ride it. (laughs) I'm going to ride this because this is something that I've been wanting to talk about for quite a while. And then Brendan's like, let's start a podcast. And I'm like, yes, I finally get to talk about the cobblestone member of that community <laughs> board. All right, so let me go back to that example um, and about the community board member that was prioritizing cobblestones like over affordable housing, you know, in an, in the midst of an affordable housing crisis, like no big deal, um, because it does a good job of encapsulating, I think, how systemic racism works. Uh, and it's important to recognize here that that community board member wasn't just expressing an individual opinion, right? She was expressing an institutional one, like designed to keep out affordable housing, designed to keep out low income people, like designed to keep out people of color. This was by design and like by law. And like, what's interesting about New York City, like a city I obviously care deeply about, but like, it's like, Many blue cities in America, it is, like, viciously segregated. There was a study by the Brookings Institute that found that the New York York metropolitan area, right, this, like, very progressive place, is the second most segregated place in America, And, like, this didn't happen naturally. So, like, a little bit of background here, because I think it's interesting. Like, New York's initial zoning ordinance, the 1916 zoning ordinance, listeners, don't fall asleep yet. Like, it, it gets interesting. Like, it was designed to keep out immigrants from white communities, like, among many other things. And, like, proponents of this law like are on record referring to immigrants as invaders and parasites. And like one of the most notable architects of this law was a guy named Robert Whitten, who like later went on to write Atlanta's Jim Crow zoning laws. And, you know, he literally expressly thought of residential segregation as like this natural thing. So like Robert Witten was a dickhead. And like then in 1961, like New York City replaced its zoning ordinance with the one we have today. Okay, and what's interesting is the one we have today is even more exclusionary, more discriminatory and more racist than the old one, like the zoning system that New York City has today goes further than the one that was created by a Jim Crow segregationist. So back to the cobblestones like this is why the cobblestone community board member said what she said, because it's. An argument that has effectively been enshrined into law like these are tools like that are intended to be used by people like her like but to be clear like this problem is not confined right just to, to New York City this represents the single biggest failure of blue cities and blue states across the country and if, if you look at the data people of color are fleeing like these very blue places, for more affordable and less segregated areas in the South. Like, what a paradox. What a failure of mission. Like the South is still very segregated, but it's less segregated than many parts of the Northeast and the West Coast. So like these areas are losing African Americans to reverse migration due to their discriminatory policies. Like here's a statistic, 17% of blacks that moved to the South in the last decade left New York state. So like while we were busy talking about how progressive we are, African Americans were leaving because of our segregationist policy. So let me end on this note. The protests, like in recent weeks in support of Black Lives Matter, were both like extraordinarily inspiring and like crucially, crucially important. Like it cannot be overstated. But like one thing I couldn't get out of my head is that like if places like New York City achieve police reform, but there are eventually no people of color left. To, like, reap the benefits of those reforms because of our segregationist policies that kick them out. Like, what did we accomplish? So, like, my point is, like, black lives matter. Like, it has to matter on policing and it has to matter on housing and just everything. (laughs) Like, the left can't Mm -hmm. pick and choose here. Real progressives
1: have to fight for fucking all. (laughs) And just to follow up on that, because there's, you know... For anyone who's lived in Jersey at all, and I've lived in Jersey all 33 years of my very, very long life, um, it's just drilled into your head that New Jersey has the highest taxes in the world. They're the worst. That's what's holding us back. If we just got rid of the taxes or lowered them, we would be better off. And just to put it out there, yes, New Jersey has high property taxes uh, compared to other states, but everything else is pretty average, And when you take into account income, which you should because, you know, a $150 speeding ticket hits differently if you make $50,000 a year versus make a million a year. Um, When you take into account income, New Jersey is uh, unremarkable. We're basically middle of the pack. But I say all that because that tax conversation focuses on the concerns of wealthy white residents, right? And the whole thing is like, well, they're going to leave. They're going to flee. We're going to be screwed. And when you look at out-migration statistics, the majority of people who leave New Jersey make less than $60,000 a year, are mostly people of color, and it's because they can't, one, afford to be here is probably a big part of it, but two, the resources available to them to be successful are not maintained properly, they're not invested in, they are not accessible, uh, they're not reliable. And so that's the main issue here is, you know, it's not just about how do we attract people to stay here? Because hey, my tax rate is low. You know that's the whole reason for people living in Florida, basically, which is just like a one note joke to me. But are, does your state have the resources necessary to help people be successful in their lives? And that's kind of what you're talking about, Aaron. Like, like if, if folks are leaving New York City uh, because they're being because you know segregationist policies are just screwing them over, that's an access to resources issue, and that's an access to opportunity and prosperity issue. And until states wrap their minds around that and say, okay, we need to invest in our assets so that people feel that they this is the place to be so that they can like make it and that they can do what they gotta do for themselves and their families, that's when we're gonna be successful. But we have this myopic and really narrow conversation around tax policy all the time because that serves the interests of a mostly wealthy, mostly white electorate. Well, what about look, the I mean, this is, this is-
0: <laughs>
2: Yeah, Breaking You didn't news. mention anything about the cobblestones. Like, file that's the
0: priority a, right now,
2: Brendan. Cobblestones right. file second defamation lawsuit in federal court. <laughs> um. Whatever. Take it all. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, look, I think at the core of this, um, at the core of all of these things, right, is like, how you define the problem. That's why we started this conversation where we did, right? Like defining the problem of white supremacy, defining the problem of systemic racism, expanding the discussion beyond the question of uh, police brutality to say like, you got to look at all this in its totality. And here's the thing. Absent every institution in this country actually putting its time, energy, and money into educating people about the truth, we are going to continue to perpetuate the problem. There's just no other way forward because if you don't define the problem the right way, you can never offer the right solution. Right? So like the, the challenge with that is that most people when they confront difficult racial situations in this country, um, are looking for a couple things. Number one is re the affirmation of my personal goodness, right? Like God forbid Mm -hmm. i be called a racist. Um, so most people, in particular white people, are looking for the affirmation of my personal goodness. I don't want to speak for all people from marginalized communities, but I've heard from plenty inside of the spaces that I engage of a feeling that they can't fully vocalize what they want to vocalize inside of those institutions because those institutions are largely controlled by white men and they fear retribution. And so when you have this, when you have this like silencing effect, either intentionally or just because of the way the world works and this desti- you know this desire for uh, comfort what you end up with is sort of off ramps you're giving people off ramps away from the real work and right now there are two off ramps being offered to people one is speaking out against police brutality they might not want to defund the police and whatever that means which we'll talk about but nobody can nobody can stand up against police brutality right now I guess I shouldn't say nobody there's back the blue back the blue events happening across the country right now. But like, it's easy to, to say police brutality is a bad thing. And lots of people are taking that off ramp. And it's easy to say individual racism is a bad thing. And lots of people are taking that off ramp because the real work is much more complicated and the real work requires you to not just learn, but to unlearn. Right. To sit through a a different telling of America's history and to look at all of the different systemic inequities that takes a desire and a willingness which is not that easy and so um we have to be concerned about enabling those off-ramps because those off-ramps ultimately undermine the uh the, the the very nature of the solution because you have to stay through. You have to take the highway all the way to the end into the acceptance of systemic racism built on a foundation of white supremacy, which forces you to acknowledge the benefits you're getting from the system and the costs of those benefits in order to actually be accountable, to apologize, to recognize, and then to reform yourself in the way that you move so that you can reform a system or rebuild a system, and so with that Sort of as a primer, Aaron, I'm hoping that you can sort of, you know, take us one level deeper now in the conversation of systemic racism, which, as you've already said, you know, in not so many words, is not (laughs) isolated to conservatives in the South. Mm -hmm. White supremacy is not the problem of conservatives in the South. There are plenty of racism, systemic and otherwise, in the North, in major cities, in in the Democratic Party, etc., um, there is no monopoly, but I'm wondering if you can sort of help us take the next step in from this, you know, macro to micro framework, uh, and let's, let's dive into systemic racism a little bit more.
0: Yeah, so, like, we've defined systemic racism and acknowledged that, like, every structure and institution in America is impacted. Um, however, it seems like many people um, across America— uh, Republicans and also Democrats like struggle to understand this and often dismiss and deny like the existence of systemic racism. and like if you look at the disparities in outcomes, like it makes it very clear that on almost every measure of health and wealth and just life, like black people in America and white people in America have very different outcomes, as Brendan mentioned, like on average, like here are a few statistics, non white school districts get 23 billion dollars less funding than white ones. Uh, Black students who began college in the fall of 2011 had higher dropout rates and lower six year completion rates uh, than white students at $171,000. The net worth of a typical white family is nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family. Only 40% of black Americans own homes compared to 70% of whites. So like, this isn't an opinion, like these are like factual statements and like the data and the numbers. And as Brendan always says, the math, right? Like make this unequivocal. So like my question, Uh, For you, Brendan, is how do we persuade people who are not typically aligned with the left, like on issues of race? Like, how do we persuade them on this? And do you think it's worth trying to persuade them?
1: Or should we just keep to our own? Well, I think it's, you know, it's not even about just the left and how the left talks about it, but, you know, what's the perspective you're going to bring to what does it mean to be successful and be healthy and safe in America, right? I mean, you could call it the American dream. You know, George Carlin and, you know, James Ballin have had a lot to say about you got to be asleep to believe it. Um, but I think when we, you know, some of the statistics you just laid out, I, I, let me add another one to the pile. Um, this one is a New Jersey one specifically, but I know it is a little bit similar across the nation. Um, white, white family wealth in New Jersey is over $300,000 on average. Black family wealth in New Jersey is $5,900 on average. So when you have that gap in resources and that gap in ability to weather a down period, whether you know, a tough couple of, of weeks or months, um, be able to you know, deal with uh, a crisis uh, when it comes to somebody's health, or somebody losing a job, whatever it may be, there's just no way to make that up, right? There's just no way to have an even playing field where someone who's got that little amount, that small amount of wealth is gonna be able to survive uh, a shock to the system. They're gonna be able to survive an emergency situation. And so for me, you know, in the work I do, we got this little tagline that, <laughs> I just randomly said it one day, and it grew into a frickin' movement, I swear. But we say math is real. <laughs> and by that, what I mean is, I mean a couple of things, but in, with regards to this conversation, is that the outcomes that people see in their lives um, are not just the effect of their own decisions. It is the effect of centuries, you know, decades and centuries of decisions that have been made before them, without them, uh, that they have no choice over. And so that is all about state policy, you know, government policy, uh, how are we setting people up for success? And so when I think about folks who are not particularly interested in this you know, really endless challenge and question, my thing is you know, when we think about where, where, do, where does the opportunity lie to grow our society and increase the number of people who are, who are prosperous, I'm not gonna look at people who are already wealthy. They're already wealthy. They're already doing great. Why, do, why are we trying to increase their ability to do well? There's such limited space for them to grow, right? There's such limited space for them to perform better on the metrics. The space and the opportunity for incredible growth and productivity and you know, better, better health outcomes, whatever it may be, is for folks who are at the bottom of the ladder because they've been placed there, they've been pushed there, they've been left behind forever. And if you want to have a more prosperous country that is more resilient to shocks to the system, whether it be war, whether it be famine, whether it be you know, unexpected recessions, uh, whether it be a pandemic, whatever it may be, making sure that people have personal resiliency and personal ability to weather those downturns is going to be the most critical thing. There's nothing worse. You know, when, when I think about poverty, I consider poverty a national security issue. If, if we have so many people in this country who are unable to be healthy and to, to, to take care of themselves and their families, that means that we are weaker as a nation, right? And so if we're gonna target uh, policies at anyone, it should be at those who are struggling the most. And if we're gonna do that, we need to understand the challenge ahead of us. We need to understand why they are struggling. We need to be honest about what are the barriers that exist uh, to prevent them from being more successful. Uh, and once we get to that point and once we have an honest conversation about that, and I think that really you know, probably requires at some point a truth and reconciliation uh, c- mm-hmm. committee like we saw in South Africa or sort, you know, I don't want to go as far to say the Nuremberg trials, but like at least other countries that have, you know, have, have dealt with and grappled with uh, apartheid systems, which I would argue America does have an apartheid system. We have a system based on uh, race that holds people back. Um, there was some opportunity to grapple with that, be honest with that, and move forward. We have never done that in this country. We have mm-hmm. never taken it upon ourselves to say, this is a stain, it's preventing us from being better, it's preventing us from being more successful. And until we do that, we're just gonna keep on going around the drain with this nonsense. And so for mm-hmm. me, if people don't really care about it from a, you wanna say a social justice warrior standpoint, quote unquote, you wanna use that like ridiculous term, care about it from an economic standpoint economically, this makes no sense. Economically, this is insane. Economically, it is awful policy to continue to push so many people behind and have so many people who, have so many people who cannot take part in our economy fully.
2: But, but that's only true if you accept the very premise of the statement you're making, yes. which, which requires you to accept the idea that the system is real that systemic racism is real, that the outcome is tied to the system more so than it is to the individual because at the center of the of the other narrative, the narrative that is dominant inside of America's story is individual self-reliance, is individual exceptionalism, is if I work hard and play by the rules, that then I will get ahead. And if I got ahead, it's because I worked hard. Mm-hmm. I have three master's degrees. I know that I spent plenty of time doing stuff But like, I also came out of a situation that was pretty damn good. And I'm no more or less intelligent than a whole bunch of people that came out of really shitty situations uh, who never had the access to the things that I had access to. From From a broad economic policy standpoint, absolutely, you're right. But you're only right if I accept the story of systemic racism. Now, I'm using, I'm saying story To point out that not that it is a story it is a truth Mm -hmm. it is true but there is a narrative in this country that is as deep as everything else in this country because it is required to explain away and justify the system and how it got here that that sort of completely wipes out your argument in the first place because there are so many people in this country who hold the other narrative as fact and remember we said Mm -hmm. earlier the Kendi line about denial is the heartbeat of racism Mm -hmm. The denial of the story is sort of the center of that. So they're going to push back on you in the first place.
1: So does this require then just like really being almost offensively explicit about redlining G.I. Bill and who was included, who wasn't? even the New Deal and how much of a difference that made in the lives of every American except for non-white Americans because of specific uh, agreements that were made around that. Like, is that what we should be hammering home? Is that there's been a system of wealth creation that's been afforded to white Americans that has not been afforded to others and here's how? I think,
0: uh, uh, or you might have I respond to that or did you wanna? Go for it, your uh,
2: conversation baby.
0: So. I think you can be explicit, uh, but you can also relate to whoever it is you're speaking to. So, like, for example, if I'm talking to someone like me, right, who's on the left, like, I could just curse about this shit and, like, throw bombs and just say, like, this is fucked up and, like, you don't have to do that much persuasion. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm totally on board. But if you're talking to, like, let's say someone who's right of center, like they call themselves a constitutionalist, like, I'd be damned if I don't mention the Constitution in Mm. every sentence and remind them that people of color had their constitutional rights infringed upon, like through slavery and through redlining and through segregation. And if they aren't willing to help out, and clean this up and make people's lives better. Well, I'm going to take the Constitution and just beat them over the head with it.
1: But even to, you know, Orrin, I I take your point seriously. I guess the reason I hammer economics is, you know, a good example is, um, you know, so for my organization, like we take very seriously racial equity and trying to have a state, you know, pushing for policies to ensure that every New Jerseyan has the resources they need to thrive. Like that's just like a basic part of our mission statement, right, and our value set. Um, but we take the hardcore economic position from time to time because that's, as you're saying, sometimes that's all people care about, right? And so an example is um, when it comes to when it came to um, getting rid of the death penalty in New Jersey. Obviously, for a lot of people, that's like a moral issue, and mm-hmm. they will come at it from a values-based approach. But we got that done because we made the argument that hey this is f- super freaking expensive and costly to the state of New Jersey to do as much as we're doing it, and we could save all this money by getting rid of it. And that was the argument that won the day, right? Uh, as awful as that may be for a lot of folks, that was really what cracked the back of it. And same thing with marijuana legalization. For a lot of folks, obviously, including myself, it's about ending the war on drugs. It's about ending prohibition. It's about stopping a system that primarily and um, disproportionately puts – uh, black people in jail for something that basically everybody does. And we've had to make arguments around economics and say, hey, the cost of prohibition in New Jersey is this much, which is a ton. And you could also have enough revenue from taxes on a legal market uh, that would allow you to make investments in other places. And you would have a safer... Uh, just, you know, safer communities because you're not going to have open drug dealing on corners, right? I I, I agree with you that, like, if somebody doesn't, you know, find the story and the truth of white supremacy and, you know, sort of racist uh, infrastructure and systems in America to be true, they're they're sort of going to dismiss this. Uh, But I do think there are some folks for whom, hey, the bottom line matters, the pocketbook matters, my wallet matters and if you're telling me that we can be more efficient about this and when that we can stop this behavior that will cost us less money that, that seems to work with more people than I'm comfortable with but it still works so and at the end I, of the I day we the... care about outcomes and yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: right that was your point before the,
2: the 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 pushback i would have on this is number 1 i think that we we can take lessons from the micro and apply them onto the macro but that doesn't mean They work on the macro. So Mm. talking about how we used economic language to get marijuana legalization passed in a state to me is a very different conversation than accepting the nature of systemic racism and the history of white supremacy as the driving force behind systemic racism. Mm. Because one of those things is dealing with an issue which over time has lost a lot of social taboo, has become very accepted um, and doesn't threaten the deep story of self and us and the other threatens the deep story of self and us it's why when when liberals and progressives ask you know trump voters or you know working class republican voters something like uh how can you support these guys it's bad for your pocketbooks," you know or like you're you're voting against your own economic self-interest to me that always comes off as both smug which is why they call us liberal elites Mm -hmm. and it demonstrates that we don't actually understand what the most important individual motivator is, which is ultimately your own self of sense, your own sense of self and your identity. And so protecting your story of self and protecting your story of us is far more important than whether or not my income is going to go up four thousand dollars because I elect some president or whatever. if it were just as simple as like let me lay out in a spreadsheet which policies are going to be better for me i think we know that you know you probably wouldn't have a president trump you'd have a president clinton mm-hmm. um and and so like that that's that's the pushback i have now is that right i don't know um but with, with from the standpoint of accepting systemic racism and white supremacy you know my my gut reaction is you can't solve these things if people don't know. I think you said truth and reconciliation, but reconciliation mm-hmm. is the second second part of that statement. Mm-hmm. You have to start with truth, and truth requires teaching history as it is, not history yeah. as we want to whitewash it down to be. And so do I, You know, from a pedagogical standpoint, do I have the perfect framework by which you can teach systemic racism and outline it for people? No, but what I also know is that some people today Are in a place where they're really willing to listen and they're really deeply reflecting. And others aren't, right? Others are taking the off ramp and saying police brutality bad, individual racism bad. I'm gonna talk about love and tolerance and respect and all that stuff. And that's great, but like that's not how racism works. That's not why it perpetuates. And that's not why, you know, that's not why on its own uh, we're all in the streets.
1: I think the 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 concern is that we are in this moment now where saying Black Lives Matter is like the default thing to do, right? You you even see Jamie Dimon like taking a knee in front of, you know, in front of the in front of Wall Street, and it's just like, okay, like what does that mean? Um, On Juneteenth, you know, just every corporation just put out a statement, and you know. Uh, said yes you know we celebrate juneteenth and you know this is this is an important day and we all we all should recognize it um but unless we're going to see major policy change you know we i think we should get to the 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 meat of the defund the police conversation now you know it seems to me that the default position on policing in america right now is reform as a result of a lot of the recent events i don't know if either of you disagree but that's a that's a remarkable thing if that is the case, right that the Overton window has shifted so much that you know as you know oren as you said there's still people who you know you got you got the back to blue uh, demonstrations you got a lot of blue lives matter folks out there, but for folks who are in leadership, it seems like at least there is recognition that there has to be some reform and up until very recently that was not the case and now we're having a conversation about not just reform but like what does it mean to have American policing in the form that it is—what does it mean to have it support it with the resources that it that it enjoys? Um, and can we imagine really a public safety infrastructure in this country that is not so reliant on someone showing up with a sidearm every in every single situation? Is that necessary? And so, um, I think we should get into this conversation in, in 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 earnest now because we should really talk about this. Uh, as a spectrum right and so there's the folks who you know they hear defund the police and they're like well you know we don't really no one no one means that <laughs> uh you know we just we just need to make some light reforms need you know get rid of chokeholds um you know do some more sensitivity training do some more awareness trainings do some more de de-esca- de-escalation trainings will be cool uh that you know we we need police very much in society uh we just need to make sure they're not killing people uh then you got folks who are like I think entertaining defunding the police and, you know, willing to look at, you know, budgets and say, is there something here? You know, do they have too much, you know, too much support, too much, too many resources? You know, the militarization of police has been a major problem for a very long time. Um, Going back to some changes uh, in policy from the Clinton administration, uh, you know, basically the military purchased too many, Tanks into too t- too many weapons of war, and, and instead of getting rid of them, we just said, ah, you know, give them to police departments. Um, and just what is you know is there something here with regards to maybe moving around some 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 dollars and taking them away from police departments and putting them towards other other professions? You know, having more mental health professionals, having more social workers in the public safety infrastructure and system that we have in this country, and then you have the folks who, I think honestly haven't been taken as seriously as as they should be who are like no when we say defund the police we mean defund the police like they're true blue police abolitionists uh that is not some fly-by-night uh movement or or position that is something that has you know been around for quite a long time has some very serious scholarship behind it um i remember seeing like a bunch of writers at vox just being like oh you know this is Clearly, an unserious take. No, they're very serious, and there's a lot of research and a lot of uh, academic, um, you know, thinking that has been put into it for decades. And that is a that is a group of folks who are saying we don't need policing in the way that it has, you know, manifested itself in our society anymore. We don't need people showing up to these situations. Uh, we don't need police to be, you know, the primary or any part of public safety infrastructure here, and so when we when we take into account that sort of wide spectrum of positions, you know, what are some of the challenges that you know you all see? You know, what are some of the the pitfalls or some of the, the 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 barriers to really getting real reform or change or you know budget um, budget changes or just full on abolition? You know, Orin. You know, specifically, I want to hear from you right now because I think we need to get something out of this moment. It would be a, a it would be an awful tragedy if you know we were going through all this right now. People are in the streets, and we didn't get anything in policing. I think actually we need stuff. We need something more than you know beyond policing. But at the very least, we need some change in policing. You know, what do you think is probably most palatable and likely to happen, considering
2: where we are right now? You know, so on the on the specifics of the defund debate right like the 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 one thing that I saw that was sort of the most clear simple way to understand it was uh, I think AOC put this up on Instagram and she's like, if you want to know what defund the police would look like, go look at a white suburb and I thought that that was like a really powerful simple way to think about it and then I started to think about where I grew up and what what presence police really had in my life. There's a police station, you know, a mile and a half down from the house that I grew up in. But, you know, other than seeing a cop, you know, pull somebody over for speeding uh, or occasionally driving through the neighborhood, you know, growing up, my interaction with the police was like non-existent. You know, maybe the, the, the cop who was in our high school every day but like, obviously, like that relationship was very, very different in my high school, like the police in my high school are not the way that police in high schools are in other places, you know, in and around Chicago, right? In in non-white areas. So, you know, for me, that was a really interesting take on it, which was to say, like, if if all of our communities looked like this and, and looking like this is a byproduct of investment of resources, right? It's things for kids to go do, it's mental health, it's health care, it's nutrition, it's uh, uh, educational support, it's the investment in the education system itself. It's summer jobs, It's you know, go down the list of things. Um, you know, so so when I hear the defund the police framework, you know, no, no disrespect to the many abolitionists who are uh, friends whom I respect. I don't I don't think that politically where this is ending anytime soon is with no cops. Um. So so from my perspective, the political fear I think I hear, and I'm not voicing this for me, I'm voicing this now for what has been brought to me, is mm-hmm. people are scared that the defund the police movement is gonna turn into like a political negative backlash at the polls and like, can we come up with a different slogan and, um, mm-hmm. you know, so like there's a lot of these fears from folks who are sitting around this thinking about it from the purely electoral political standpoint, which I get, Um, But for me, the simplest way to think about this is white neighborhoods look the way they do because of an investment of resources. Black neighborhoods look the way they do because of a disinvestment of resources. And rather than continuing to up our budgets for the militarization of police forces, let's up our budgets everywhere else Mm -hmm. so that black neighborhoods start looking more like white neighborhoods. And maybe in an ideal world, we wouldn't have, quote, unquote, black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. We just have neighborhoods. They were all funded in similar ways and school systems that were funded in similar ways. So that, I mean, that's where, that's where I am, mm-hmm. which is not like the hottest take or the deepest you know set of policy nuance, but it was a way for me to come to terms with a, a, a slogan that's challenging in a moment that's necessary uh, and trying to understand it in a way that for me, as someone who doesn't spend his life inside of uh, these issues, I could walk away and be like, "Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Let's do that thing."
1: Mm-hmm. Aaron, you, you know, especially for you, you, you've done a lot of work in different parts of New York City. Uh, how do you think this this sort of rallying cry almost hits in the city? And you know, I think it hits differently. You, you were saying to us, it hits differently in Brooklyn than it would in the Bronx and other places for a variety of reasons. You know, you want to get into that a little bit.
0: I think it's, defund police is extraordinarily important. And I think in places like New York City, Philadelphia, other cities, there's a lot of uh, potential for um, budget cuts that could then be, you know, money that could then be diverted to uh, social causes. Uh, but like the public and the press sometimes talks about like systems in America, like there are actually individual systems, like the housing system the education system the criminal justice system but it's important for people to like recognize that there is no housing system and there is no education system and there is no criminal justice system there are housing systems and education systems, and criminal justice systems, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of systems across America. America is one of the most decentralized, if not the most decentralized country in human history. Like, America has 18,000 federal, state, local and city uh, enforcement department, uh, law enforcement departments, all with their own rules, 18,000. So while there are things we can and should do at a national level, like data collection and accountability, at the end of the day, this is not just a local matter. It is a fucking hyper local matter. So we are going to need an approach that reflects the reality of America's radically, insanely decentralized system. But here's the good news. Close to 50% of America's population lives in just eight states. It's like 47%. So if you can just overhaul a fraction of the 18,000 law enforcement agencies, you can still have like a huge, huge effect.
1: Yeah, and there's been a lot of good stuff put out on you know exactly what uh you know localities could afford uh with, with with police budget cuts um there was a piece uh or i think it was an instagram post showing that you know with the cost of one year of nypd misconduct lawsuits which is uh approximately 230 million dollars uh that would pay for one year of free bus rides for every new yorker right and Ooh. so I think when we consider, um, you know, the idea of defunding, that that should include also how much money, public taxpayer money, is spent in uh, settling lawsuits that are brought about because of police misconduct and brutality cases. um, That screw everyone. (laughs) Every taxpayer. Yes, absolutely. And because folks are not, you you know, being proper stewards of the state, they're not acting uh with you know safety in mind uh at least at the forefront of everything and um it's just a situation where dollars are going to places where they they don't need to be going and as a result uh we we have less to work with i do want to i always kind of push back against sort of a um a zero-sum mindset when it comes to budgeting because if we think of the pie as being static then all we do is get into like this never ending fight with each other about like what should go to where. Right. And I think there is an importance in saying, okay, how do we grow the pie? How do we get more resources in here? And how do we make sure we are investing in things that like Oren was, you know, running down where, you know, environment, education, construction of affordable homes, uh, you know, more stuff like that, transportation, all that type of stuff is, is what's going to matter uh, to get rid of situations that really breed Violence, And I think something that we can't get away from here is that, you know, poverty is criminalized, clearly. And so we can't get away from how poverty is tied to this. But there was a great article by Shelter Force, um, of which I am a, a board member of, actually, um, that made uh, a good I point. I didn't know that. <laughs> it's based in New Jersey, actually, even though it's like a national, you know, outlet. Um, but it made a good point that... I read it all the time. <laughs> um... Yeah, you're in housing. You you freaking should. I'm glad I'll, t- I'll tell you yeah. you're a big fan. you the man. Yeah, please. <laughs> um, but there's an article from Shelter Force from June 2nd uh, from the editor-in-chief at Shelter Force, Miriam uh, Axel Lute. Uh says, community organizations have to talk about police violence directly. And she says here, You know, uh, when anger boils over at yet another another police killing, we tend to drop back to talking about the role other racial injustices play in causing feelings of hopelessness on the part of those who are angry. Housing cost burdens, segregation, disinvestment, and vacancy, racial disparities in employment and health treatment, displacement, the racial wealth gap, you know, Oren and Aaron, all the things we've been talking about here today, right? And Mm -hmm. she goes on to say, shelter force has run those pieces, And they are not wrong, but all of those things are important and real, but they cause harm, they cause frustration, they cause depression and chronic stress in those who are working hard for a better life in the face of them. And sometimes an uprising can provide leverage to spur change for the better on those fronts. Nonetheless, focusing only on the work we're already doing as our response seems like an example of people with a hammer seeing only the nails And not the fact that some of the wood is rotten. So she's basically making the point here, like, there are still changes specifically within policing that need to happen, right? Like, we can talk about investments in all the things we've talked about all day long. But at the end of the day, Henry Louis Gates still had a situation where he was in his home and a police officer didn't believe that it was his home, right? And Henry Louis Gates is a very wealthy Uh, African-American man in this country, very popular man, very well known, but his, his wealth, his privilege did nothing for him in that moment. And so even though there's a class aspect to this, and even though there is a resource and investment aspect to this, there are still specific things with regards to police behavior that is racialized. That cannot be ignored and you know we got to take seriously and i'm not saying this to me that we haven't taken it seriously in this conversation but it just means to say that you could fix all the things we've talked about you can make all the investments you want to but there are still going to be we're still going to have a white supremacy system here if we don't focus on the issue of race and how black people are treated regardless of their bank account
2: i mean so that 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 sort of takes me back to something i've been that's something I've been hammering on the entire the, this entire conversation, which is, yeah. like, un- unless you actually confront the root cause, you'll never get to the right solution. You'll never get to the right solution. Um, and we'll be stuck in a hopefully improving, though still problematic feedback loop um, that ultimately only continues... Uh, so long as society tolerates it, you know I've got a a, a friend, um, an NLC friend from Chicago named Xavier Ramey, who's one of the wisest people I've ever met. Uh, those of you should listening should check out Justice Informed. But one of the things that he said, uh, and I hope I don't misquote him now, but uh, not too long ago, is that every day Black America doesn't revolt is an act of mercy, and that was a pretty powerful statement to me. um everyday black america doesn't revolt as an act of mercy lots of people have seen the six minute uh the six minute video that trevor noah shared right of this this black Mm. woman activist Mm -hmm. you know at the end talking about like we you know we don't care about the target because we don't own anything
1: Mm -hmm.
2: right and then she ends by Mm. saying y'all should just be happy we're only asking for equality and not revenge which was like mm-hmm. this incredibly powerful ending to that piece. And so I look, you know, the, the way we police in America has to change, but the way we police in America is a byproduct of all these other things, right? It is a byproduct of the story we have told ourselves about ourselves, the story we've told ourselves about America. It is a byproduct of the way, uh, we have not only criminalized poverty, but we have painted the black person as a criminal, as mm-hmm. more likely to be criminal, as more likely to be violent, right? Going all mm-hmm. the way back to sort of uh, the birth of a nation, uh, as you know, the, the, the Netflix documentary 13th points out so well. Mm-hmm. If we don't confront all that, we can't deal with any of this other stuff, right? Like that at the end of the day confronting that and sitting with that and having to come to a place of acceptance on that. That's the key, in my opinion, though I am certainly far from an expert on these things. And what I do know, I have learned from you know, people like you, Brandon, who have been willing to pour into me. But I will tell you, for years, I was unwilling to say white supremacy to white people because I thought it was too divisive. And I kept saying to folks, uh, to leaders, activists of color, BLM activists who are challenging me, like, can't we do this another way? And they kept saying, unless you name, mm-hmm. unless you name the, the problem and define the problem and gain agreement on what the problem is, every other way forward will ultimately perpetuate the problem. And it took me a while to figure out why that was true. But, you know, mm-hmm. here we are.
1: So how do we, I, I want to figure out a way to both recognize the challenge of the problem and saying that, you know, I, I think when we started having this conversation, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we, we were we were making the statement that it would be a shame if the only change that came out of this moment was a policing change, right? And like, if we if we weren't able to talk about other things as well, um, and, and get changes when it comes to investments in communities and the ways in which companies take seriously how they uh, value and you know, value uh, staff of color and, and put people into positions of leadership. But you know, I think my, my major concern right now is we as a country don't do very good with maintaining focus. And, you know, I think the only reason we've, I, I'm, I'm shocked that we have still had uh, protests as long as are we you, have had protests. Are you starting,
2: are you going to ask the question, what, what is our national <laughs> Ritalin going to be?
1: <laughs> Basically, right? And like, really, you know, see, I, I would argue, and a lot of people have made this point, like, if it weren't for coronavirus and weren't for mass unemployment right now and weren't for people just being at home and having nothing else distracting them from, The murder of George Floyd just staring them in the face. We probably would not have as many people in the streets, and we would not have as many people in the streets on back to back to back to back to back nights, right? Like just maintaining this. Um, People have time for this right now. Like people are making time for this right now uh, to the degree where it's a different moment than it was in previous uh, murders and killings. And so whether or not that's true my concern is how do we maintain this energy how do we keep this same energy right how do we keep this interest in these issues as people are are expressing it right now because you know when we get to august september october um, there's still going to be a lot of things that haven't been done but how do we remind people that there was this you know the the amount of energy intention and sense of hope you could literally cut it with a knife right you, you could you could feel you could, everybody was saying this feels like a different moment how do we make sure people continue to feel like this is a different enough moment that it is worth their time and energy and personal sacrifice to ensure that we don't go back to the same bullshit, uh and have to go through all of this all over again in the same way that we have just because time has passed i, I don't know I'm I'm literally just talking out loud right now, and I'm just thinking aloud. But like, if if we let energy pass, because we're not gonna we're not gonna pass all these policies that we want to see over the next three months. Like, as someone who does policy work, and both of you do as well, policy work is hard, <laughs> even when there is public support for it. Um, but how do we how do we continue to like galvanize and keep the, the spirit um, going forward? You know, what what is the thing that you're gonna try to do? To make sure that folks don't forget, uh, don't forget this moment.
2: Look, um, as a white-presenting Jewish man in America, my answer is that I will keep it a focus for others because I will keep it a focus for myself. Hmm. Um, can i make everybody feel it with the same intensity and urgency no can i help it make it as clear to people as it is perhaps in my mind no um but i do think we're at a moment of reckoning where this is a time for choosing it is a time for sides it is a time for uh deep learning and reflection and you know for those who are willing to engage i will engage them for those who are not willing to engage or are not willing to engage genuinely, I will not invest my time and energy into them. And then I will continue to focus my energy on capacity building and power building, um, because I see this not as a fight for the next four months, but as a fight for the next four decades. Um, And knowing that, you know, these things aren't going to be changed with one election or with one moment. And um. You know that means for me, I think a couple things. One, the institutions that I'm engaging with need to be continue need to continue to be pushed. Uh, two, on a personal level, the institutions I support and the candidates I support moving forward will have a new line of questioning when they talk to me, and it's mm-hmm. going to center racial justice frames. You know, as a as a as a Jewish man, I uh, often talk to folks about anti-Semitism. I want to understand people's Uh, position on the conflict in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine uh, and where they sit if they're a federal candidate and how they think we should try to resolve that situation Um, I because of my work with men for choice always ask people where they are on issues of reproductive freedom and gender equity Um, if they're running for Congress I ask them about the Hyde Amendment in particular and whether or not they're gonna uh, vote to overturn the Hyde Amendment so that low-income, uh, low-income people who can get pregnant who are on Medicaid uh, have access to abortion. Um, and now moving forward, there's going to be a new line of questioning from me, and that's both for candidates as well as organizations. Organizations that I work with, organizations that I may uh, support financially, you know, nonprofits and whatnot. And for me, I think that's part of how I'm going to do it is whenever i'm having conversations with people who are looking for something from me i'm going to bring this up as a caveat right we're going to have a quid pro quo and the (laughs) the the, if if you want the quid of of my money my time my energy my support my name whatever i need the pro in the quo i don't know if i'm getting any of this right i didn't take latin um whatever and uh i understand it about as well as the president does and um you know, we're going to have to have a conversation about race and racial justice and how you're structuring your organization and what have you done to change since George Floyd's murder and how are you centering DEI frameworks into your organization and are you teaching people about systemic racism and how do you identify the problems? And if not, then you're going to have to have an annoying conversation with me in which I talk at you for a while. Mm. And you'll earn my support if I see movement. And if not,
0: hold.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Holding every level of govern, holding every level of government accountable, right? every institution, local, every institution, every level of government, every organization, including my own. Um, obviously, this is a hyper local matter, but that doesn't mean that the federal government and the state government and also obviously the local governments like can't do anything about this and we have to keep talking about it keep hitting it over the head even if it annoys people even if it bothers people it's obviously a worthwhile issue it's an incredibly important issue and you're right brandon there's a lot of momentum and you don't want to see that just kind of fade away into the distance so gotta just keep hitting it over the head over and over and over again
1: yeah and um you know, I feel similarly, I've been keeping track with a spreadsheet, because that's how yeah, I do Yeah, you There you, you go, uh, <laughs> there you go, of course you do. Of, uh, all, Question, of does the spreadsheet
2: have regression analysis on this? Is, is there It's, regression it's qualitative
1: it data, so right now, no. Once I get that quantity there. Qualitative
2: data ain't data. Qualitative <laughs> oh. data, what <laughs> oh, is that? shots fired, shots fired. Damn, I thought you are uh, the math guy. I'm <laughs> a big supporter of qualitative <laughs> data. <laughs> I've been keeping
1: track of all the flowery passionate statements of support and solidarity from go. leaders and um you know just for a very unique moment here you know a lot, a lot of states you know they they sign their budgets at the end of june you know or at the end of december depending on what their calendar year is new jersey usually signs this budget at the end of june but because of coronavirus and everything uh and we're facing like a 10 billion dollar budget shortfall this year and next uh, the legislature and the governor decided to push it back three months. So our budget is actually not going to be signed until the end of September. So that actually gives us a little bit of a window of opportunity here to say, hey, remember all that stuff you were saying in March, April, May, June about the importance of black life, about the importance of investing in communities of color, about the importance of uh, dismantling white supremacy and breaking down barriers to opportunity and success for people who've been marginalized forever? How are you showing up? How are you showing that in your budget? Can you add uh, Mayor De Blasio and Governor Cuomo to your <laughs> list? <laughs> yeah, Governor Cuomo, who's you know getting rid of Medicaid during a pandemic, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, yeah, but, please make sure he's on your list. <laughs> but like, it's I think the one thing that gives me hope right now is I think this this moment and the difference of it is giving folks the courage to not be selective in. Um, their recognition of and sort of highlighting of this issue, right? It It is not going to be something that people do when it's convenient, or at least not as many people do it mm-hmm, when it's mm-hmm. just convenient. It is like Oren said, and like you, Aaron, said, it's going to be front and center priority for so many people in such a new way with so much more strength and force. And I think it is a new opportunity for us to hold the powerful to account and as President Obama said, make people in power uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. We have no other choice now um, as we move forward here. We, we have hit a turning point. This is different. Uh, and we're only going to know that that is true if we follow or, you know, I, put, I put out a statement uh, when all this popped off saying, you know, our leaders need to overwhelm their words with action. Not, not just, you know, follow their words or, you know, follow up. Overwhelm. I, I want you, for, for every word you say about this, I want you to do 10 things. Hells yeah. Um, and that's how we'll know you, you mean it. And if you don't mean it, and if you're falling short, and if you're making the same old excuses that you've always made forever and ever, and not to say this is not gonna be a challenging moment, we, we are still in the pandemic, we are still in a recession, like it is tough, but this is an opportunity to remake the world and remake our country. And if leadership does not take this opportunity seriously right now, we need new leaders. As, oh, yeah. amen. As, 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 is what it is and so uh, thank you both for what has been a, I think a good conversation I'm excited for the other topics that we are going to explore uh, on this program that we got going on here we uh, might bring some friends in other places into uh, these conversations we, we got a lot of folks we know that are amazing people and so um, I hope that we get to do this again very, very soon. Uh, there are definitely topics we want to explore. Uh, that I guess, you know, we can, we, can get, we can let Aaron go off on fake free markets next time or something like that. Fucking fake free markets and cobblestones. <laughs> there it is. Uh, well, I would just
2: like to report that no cobblestones were harmed in the production <laughs> of this podcast.
0: That's not true. I dropped one out my window in
1: anger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you, gents. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you. And we'll talk to you again soon
2: but